I want you to know that as we have made it our mission to go straight through the Word of God, there will be texts you will approach that will just basically preach themselves. There will be texts that will be so simple and so clear, sort of like beautiful fine art. All you need to do is, is just say, take a look, and all the depth and glory and beauty are going to be there. There are going to be other texts that we're going to look at that will be of a greater challenge. And the challenge, to be honest, is to understand the heart of God. I would say even before we read this, like I would any week, please don't just believe me. Please don't just assume it's true because I say so. You've heard me say this a thousand times or more now. But search the word. The challenge is not to turn you into a skeptic, but rather to turn you into a careful thinker. To use the word of God to search and to compare to all that you hear, not just me. The Thessalonians, we read, had a model faith. They readily turned from their idols to serve the true and living God. When Paul tells them that they have a model faith, what he tells them is that their faith, their trust in God, is spoken of as an example to those of Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, those of Greece in the area just south of Bosnia, the area of the Aegean Bay. And yet Paul speaks about another. Actually, God makes the commentary that there was one church that they were even of a greater faith than the model faith of the Thessalonians. And that was the church in Berea, up in that area of Macedonia, where there would have been as a model faith those of the Thessalonians. And yet, he tells us that they listened intently to Paul's words, but searched nightly and daily, comparing it to the word of God to see whether it was so. And God said, of model faiths, this is even more applaudable than just a great faith to say, this is what faith looks like. He says, this is what faith looks like. And this is over the top good. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been a good is good enough kind of guy. I want awesome. Or should I dare say awful? Because awesome still some are, right? And I want to challenge you to do that. And let me just say, in the text we're about to look at here, is the atheist's battle drum. If you're the kind that are actually approached by people who are quick to spout out this God that they hate, but they say they don't believe in, and which, of course, you should know, of course, already how strange that is, right? I mean, let's be honest. I don't, I'm just making sure there's no children here. Uh, I don't believe in Santa Claus or Father Christmas. But I don't hate him because he doesn't exist. Why would I hate him? If I didn't get something that I wanted for Christmas, I should be angry at my parents. Or more so probably my behavior, to be honest. But when you talk to people and they have, you know, they're sort of limited artillery of Scripture. Oh, this is their text. This is their poster boy. Because in this text, God challenges the people to do something rough. And can I just say that most people don't have a problem with someone calling themselves Lord until they actually exercise the right to do so. And here God demonstrates himself as Lord, and that is rough. I will grant you that. But I've learned this. Just because it's something rough does not make it wrong. We're all aware of that. So Numbers chapter 31. Are you there? Read along with me, would you please? 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel afterward. You shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for war and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe. That's 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe, and he sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar. That's Aaron's grandson then, the priest. With the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian, with the rest of those who were, uh, who were killed, Evi, Rechem. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of get the idea. You, you know, that's a guy you should watch out for. Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Riva. That's sort of like Riva. The five kings of Midian. Belachem, some of you are familiar with that little dandy cookie. The son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And the children of Israel took the women of Midianite, cap, of Midian captive with their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flock and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Boy, that word just doesn't transfer well these days, does it? You can blame the 60s for that. Some of you are old enough. Never mind. Then they brought the captives, the booty. And the spoil to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And Moses, Eleazar, that's the high priest of the day, priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over thousands and the captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. And Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look. These women caused the children of Israel through the, the counsel of Belachim to trespass against the Lord and the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any persons and who has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day purify every garment made of leather everything made of leather everything woven of goat's hair and everything made of wood of course they all have in common that they're all once alive then Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses only the gold the silver the bronze the iron the tin and the lead what do they all have in common they're metal you got that right just checking it was simple Everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire and it shall be clean and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterward, you may come into the camp. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eleazar, the priest and the chief fathers of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts. Between those who took part in the war who went out to battle and all the, and all the congregation. And levy a tribute for the Lord of them on the men of war who went out to battle, one of every 500 of those persons, the cattle, donkeys, sheep. Take from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a heave offering to the Lord. And from the children of Israel's half, 
you shall take one of every 50 drawn from the persons, the cattle, the donkey and the sheep from all the livestock and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Moses and Eleazar, the priest, did as the Lord commanded Moses. The booty remaining from the plunder, which the men of war had taken, was, in total, 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, of women who had not known a man intimately. And then they took half. Remember how we split it in half. So the half, the portion for those who had gone out to war, was, and it should be the same as the other side, the number was 337,500 sheep, which, by the way, coincidentally happens to be half of the total sheep. You got that, right? That's sort of simple math. And the Lord's tribute of the sheep then was 675. That's one out of every 500. The cattle were 36,000 of the Lord's tribute was 72. Same proportions. The donkey were 30,500, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. So Moses gave the tribute, which the Lord, which was the Lord's heave offering to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. And from the children of Israel's half, which Moses separated from the men who fought, and he doesn't go into the math as much, but he says the half belonging to the congregation was, and you'll see it to add up the same then, that it says um, <clears throat> 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. From the children of Israel's half, Moses took then one of every 50 drawn from man and beast, and gave them to the Levites, who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then, the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, came near to Moses. And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command, and not a man of us is missing. Of the 12,000 that went to war, 12,000 came back. Therefore, we have brought an offering for the Lord. What every man found of ornament of gold, armlets and bracelets and signet rings and earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. And Moses and Eliezer the priest received the gold from them, all the fashioned ornaments. Did you notice the word all there? And all the gold of the offering that they offered to the Lord from the captains of the thousands and captains of the hundreds was 16,750 shekels. I'll tell you what that looks like in a moment. The men of war had taken spoil every man for himself. And Moses and Eliezer the priests received the gold from the captains of thousands and hundreds and brought it to the tabernacle of meeting as a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I know that some of us have walked with you for several years. Some of us are brand new, and I thank you for both. And I know, Lord, that you don't count maturity by simply how many years we've made claim to you, but rather, Lord, how stable we become in you, how rooted we become in your love, how we are able to use your word to mend it to our senses to exercise right from wrong, how we are no longer tossed to and fro by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, by the schemes and strategies of men, but to speak the truth in love, to edify one another, to use the gifts you've given us. And Lord, I know that today you want to speak to every one of us. So, Lord, in length and in depth, minister in your word now. Lord, that you would truly today speak fluent every one of us. Lord, you know exactly where we're at. Lord, you know how to bypass, to go over, 
every language barrier, every knowledge barrier, to that place where our heart of hearts, where real decisions are made. And I pray that if there be any who have yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let this be the day of their salvation, I pray. So have your way now, Lord. We commit every second of this to you. Lord, redeem every second, we pray. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that you would be seen. And may we have so much fun in your word, Lord, that every second be rightly spent. And Lord, in that, that we would be captivated in your word now, transformed as you so desire. We surrender this to you, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, King and Master, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Okay, so look at what we're looking at. We are looking at God actually telling a group of people to kill a group of people. From the surface, I would agree with you, doesn't that sound pretty rough? It should sound pretty rough. And as we look at that, you can see why there are a group of people that basically think that God has blindly told a group of people to commit genocide, to just kill people randomly, kids, women, children, doesn't matter. First of all, let's get a little bit of background. And then after getting that background, let's see how God wants to put us in this. We are in the wilderness. We are in the last year of our 40-year wandering. We are across from the Jordan. I'm sorry, we are at the Jordan, across from Jericho. We are looking at the place God has for us. But understand, for that place that God has, a place of overflow and abject fruitfulness, God really wants us to go there different people than we left our bondage in. And I understand that for some of us, our bondage was so nasty, was so rank, was so evil, that we didn't care where we went. We just wanted to get out. But the problem with fleeing is, it tends to become a lifestyle. You flee from one bad relationship, and you wind up in another to flee from. Because fleeing doesn't matter where you're going, it only matters where you're leaving. But God doesn't talking about God doesn't talk about us fleeing except youthful us. What he tells us is that he's come to deliver us. And deliver means that you've been removed from one place and put in another. There is an address that has to come for deliverance. Deliverance is not removal. And the people are looking. They were there 40 years ago, 38 years ago. They were staring at that same river, looking at that same place, place across when they said, no, we won't go. And now we have a whole new generation looking in. And in that period of time, God has done an awful lot of things. Please understand, this text can be, couldn't be more relevant to every one of us than it is. Than any text. Hear me out. If you've made the claim to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there can be this place where what God does is he makes it Spartan. He actually starts removing things, and he starts to start adding at first, because think about how confusing that would be. He starts to just remove. And as he starts to remove, it looks good from the surface, because in the beginning, the things we want gone are the things he starts to remove often. So you came to God and you had warts hanging off your face and a tumor off your side. And you had things you couldn't even stand it. And God starts pulling those things off. And you were like, go for it, God. This is going to make me look better. This is going to be a great thing. Woohoo! And then God says, oh, this is only the beginning. And somewhere down the line, God starts pulling out stuff that you're actually not as excited about God removing. And that becomes the problem. 
Because at a point like that, God starts removing things because he's the physician. He's also the artist. And the moment you said yes to him, he put you and he lovingly took the clay that you are and he put it up and he started shaping it and pounding it and reshaping it and carving it. And the more we fight him, that we're fighting the artist. If we could see what he has in his mind, what the end result of this is, we might gladly volunteer for the route. But instead, he doesn't show us. And the reason, to be honest, is it gives us a chance to exercise faith. Faith would not be the faith we'd want if he told us everything in route. Some of the greatest display of faith, to be honest, is saying, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know why you're pulling this from me. I don't know why this is in front of me. But God says, don't worry. I'm not asking for you because you don't have to remove it. It's my job. I just want you to hate it with me. And most of the time, in the beginning, it's yes. And then after that, we spend half of our life on a tug of war with things that kill us. It's like God removing AIDS, but we want it back in our blood. We just can't see that because it's what we're familiar with. And here in this situation, God is putting us in a place where what God wants is he wants people fruitful. And understand, we could be in a retarded state of Christian growth where what happens is we said yes to Jesus, so we know we're saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to sit in the grass, and I'm going to heaven. But God is so much more for us. And we actually don't even look at that. And what will happen is we'll go from spiritual experience to spiritual experience. And we'll have enough hand raising and enough holy heebie-jeebies and enough shakes. And there's nothing wrong with those things in a relationship. They are just not the entirety of it. And anyone who's married can tell you that. Oh, there are great moments when it is really ecstatic, elation, intimacy. And there are other moments where there's just that solid agreement and understanding of who you are with them. And if everything has to be about the experience, wouldn't that be a cheap relationship? But somewhere down the line, we sit on real truth. And that real truth is what God starts to do when he starts weaning us off of all of these things in the wilderness. <clears throat> we hate that wilderness term, and we, we never use the wilderness in a positive way, right? Oh, I'm in the wilderness times. Oh, we should, and people go, oh, that's so great. No, normally it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, honey, I'm going to pray for you. Right? I mean, that's where we go with it. Because what that means is God's just pulling stuff out of me, pulling stuff. Well, if God actually, if we could see it from God's lens, we would actually say, hallelujah, more surgery. There was a girl, 22 years old, beautiful little Italian girl, who was struggling with cancer. Tumors that she had gotten originally when she was three. The situation was so tough that it actually split her parents. They divorced shortly thereafter, but they operated and got almost all of it. Listen, they got almost all of it. On the last trip that, that Daniel, the drummer, and myself had the privilege of going to, to, uh, to Rome, we went outside to the area of Latina and so forth and went to visit this girl. We hadn't met her before this. We had heard of her. She couldn't sit up. She was very, very weak. And instead of the concert we were planning on doing, we actually wound up doing a concert for three people. Well, four with the Lord, Daniel and myself. It was the girl and her parents who had now moved in with each other in the house with their daughter because she had been taken ill again because that little bit got back out again. There was another tumor and it was another tumor and they began to operate. By the time we showed up there, she was propped up on her couch, head totally bald from chemotherapy. We began to do our songs. Every song we do is about Jesus, by the way. We don't do anything but that. We did an altar call for our audience of three, she and her mom and her dad. 
And that day, Priscilla gave her life to Jesus Christ. Priscilla's mother gave her life to Jesus Christ. And her father, it's hard to tell. He was Italian. He just went, mm. I don't know. Not really sure. You can ask Daniela what that means, Deborah what that means. He gave me a big hug afterwards, but I think he gave me one beforehand. And they gave us pasta, which, anyways, you get it. So, we've been wanting to go back ever since. As they started to operate, they got most of it. And they got most of it. This morning, Priscilla went to be with Jesus. This beautiful 22-year-old, vibrant girl that three days after we had seen her pray to receive the Lord showed up at a pizza place where we were doing a concert. And at that pizza place, she stood up out of her wheelchair and sat down in a chair. I mean, this girl couldn't even have been propped up three days before. What God was doing, and I'm convinced that wasn't for her. Excuse me. That was for her mother so that they could see the power of our God. He was pushing buttons. But unfortunately, not getting all of it gets all of you sooner or later. That's the point. The good news, the peace in all of this, is that I have no doubt I'll get to see her again. I get to spend eternity singing songs with this girl. And she will laugh and sing and dance without any restriction whatsoever. But we pray for her family. Lord, we do pray for her family. Even right now, we pray for her family, that they would know you and this would be used to draw every one of them to you. God, please. Amen. So who are these Midianites? And why is God speaking so profoundly and so intensely about this group of people? Well, follow me on this a little bit of history for a moment, and we'll get right into our text. As many verses as it is, it'll actually seem actually quite relevant. I, I'm, well, of course. First of all, how was Midian introduced in Scripture? All the way back in Genesis 25. If you have your Bibles, flip. You can actually look like you know what you're doing, even if you're new to it, because it's the first book of the Bible. And as long as you can count, it's Genesis 25, the first verse. Which tells me, by the way, that the greatest miracle of Isaac was not Abraham's side. It was his wife Sarah's side. And why is that? Because even after all of the experiences of of Isaac being born, Isaac being offered, but then being taken back, him growing and all that, after all of that, his wife dies, Sarah. And guess what that old man does? He gets married again. I mean, at this point, he's a hundred and something. I'm hope, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, hope this isn't a gold digging woman, right? Whatever. You know, I'm just, I'm not trying to be mean. But it says in 25.1 that Abraham again took his wife, took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Yokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Did you notice in the middle of those was the name Midian? And that's where this boy comes from. Now, what's interesting, by the way, is what it says then after that is that Abraham, because he didn't want to split the inheritance with these new kids, uh, for whatever that's worth, you know, um, he gives them gifts and sends them. Look at what it says. He sends them east. Why is that important? Because it was promised that all the children of Abraham, even those that were wise and wealthy from the east, would come back when the Messiah would show up. You realize that's why we have Matthew chapter 2. Wise men, where did they come? From the east, and they brought very wealthy gifts. They had been sent out with gifts. God was bringing home his children. Well, for what it's worth, that's where this boy is. Now, the term Midian, could you say Midion? 
That's a little easier. It's the term here. Now, yon, by the way, means to struggle for dominance. Midyon literally means, the best translation I can give you is, alpha struggle. And I actually think that's interesting. Now, you know those kind of people. There are always alpha guys in a room full of people. And you put two alphas in the room, man, it's going to be battle time. Now, that ain't just alpha men. We're all aware of that. Ladies, you got alpha two in you. And we watched that, and in the end of it, like, oh, it doesn't matter who's the alpha, I'll be the omega when it ends. You know, and I watched that, and it's like, you know, and you watch what I'm it's like, oh man, I have a headache, and it hurts so bad, and they're like, oh, but I have a headache so bad, my ear fell off, right? Oh, my headache, so, and you see them comparing, right? And there's that struggle over who gets the authority, who gets the dominance. Do you get that? And that's what this name means. Who names their kid this? I'm going to name this child thinks he should be the boss. And that's the idea. Well, that's where we get him first. Now, maybe there's a little bit of hint in that. Now, the next time we find Midian, he's become, he's grown into a whole family. And this is what we read. Go to Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, perhaps you're familiar with the story now. Eleven of the twelve sons of Jacob, also named Israel, is a son named Joseph, Yosef, which, by the way, means, in essence, fruitful. But he's daddy's favorite of the twelve, of the eleven at this point, and then the twelve, because of the four wives he has, which God does not condone, this is the oldest of his favorite. And as a result of that, he's treating him like he is the firstborn which is a real problem when you've got ten older brothers. Needless to say, they're not as excited about it as dad is. So the boys, in essence, discover him. And Joseph, by the way, it's an interesting story. God spends more press on Joseph than anyone other than Moses in all of the, uh, the Torah, by the way. He's not even of the lineage of the Messiah. But his story is so tight and similar, preparing us for Jesus, that even to this day, in Aish communities, Jewish Aish communities, they will actually say that there may be two messiahs, one that would be the son of Joseph, who would be a suffering one, and one that would be the son of David, who would be a mighty king. Which is interesting, because Jesus was both, if you think about it, because his stepdad's name was Joe. Ah, God knows what he's doing. Anyways. They take him, and, they, and Joseph goes, and he gives a bad report of his brothers. They were bad shepherds. And the boys aren't, well, they already have a problem with him, and it gets worse. He gets a nice coat, which shows of his authority. Bros aren't excited about that either. And finally, they finally catch up with the boy. He catches up with them, and they're like, you know what, let's just kill him. And then we'll, we'll just take the coat that's so nice that Dad got for him and not us, and we'll give it to Dad and say, I don't know, it was wild beast that killed him. The wild beast is you, but just the same. And, and one of the brothers says, no, 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 guys, we can't do that. He's our brother. Let's sell him. Now, if you, you know, let's be honest. If you, have bro- if you have siblings, this sort of makes sense. Not normally about what you would do, but what they would think of you is normally the way I think of it. So they take him and they put him in a pit and leave him for dead and they're going to go get him later. But as all of that's happening, we read this in verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by. So Joseph's brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Now we know what that family starts to look like. They're Ishmaelites and Midianites. 
What do we know about them? They sell people. It tells us they're traders. We don't know what they're trading except one thing we could be confident of. They're trading people because Joseph's one of them. That much we know. Be with me so far. We read then in verse 36, if you flip down to it, it says, Now the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, in Egypt, to Potiphar. So we get that. What's rough about it is when we flip to Exodus chapter 2. So we know that there's a band of traveling traders. And interestingly enough, they are up north in the area today of Israel. Across the Jordan, beyond the Jordan, that's the idea. They're in the area sort of like near, so let's just say south of Jerusalem. But it says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, after Moses had killed, had slayed an Egyptian, when Pharaoh heard this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Do you see that? Which is interesting for the other group, because the other group was known as a nomadic trading group. Joseph is down in, or I should say in this case, Moses. Where did Moses flee from? He fled from Pharaoh. Let's just ask you, what country did he flee from? Was that rough? You got that, right? Let me ask you that again so you all can sound like you know what you're talking about. He fled from Pharaoh. What country did he flee from? Okay, let's... Really? That's all you got? I'm, I'm giving it to you here. What country? Egypt. Thank you. Right, Egypt. But he flees, and then he flees, 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 he flees, flees, he flees east to the area, just the northern tip of Saudi Arabia. And that is apparently the land of Midian. Interesting. Today, there are places around that area, for instance, a place we might call Medina, perhaps you're familiar with, Midian. And it tells us then in chapter 18, flip there, now Moses is going to stay with these people. He's going to get a wife from the Midianites. He's going to have children, two boys, from the Midianites. In chapter 18, verse 1, Moses now has been brought out of Egypt. He's gone back, delivered the people, or at least removed them. He's on his way in the wilderness, and it tells us, And Jethro, the father of Midian, I'm sorry, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. Now, quick question, let's see if you get it. What was this Midianite priest's name? How do you now? Does that paint a picture for you, or is it just me coming from America? When I hear Jethro, I think of someone talk like this. My name's Jethro. I'll fix your truck in 25 fat quicker than a speckled trout on your hook. But it's all right because he's got other names. We'll see in a moment. But he happens to be what relationship to Moses? His father-in-law. Moses married a Midianite. And therefore, as a Midian father-in-law. Does that make sense? That should be simple math, so to speak. Now go to the chapter in Numbers. Numbers chapter 10. Now you've gone from Exodus. The book next to it is Leviticus. Pass that through to Numbers 10. I'm like, surely they have to have another name other than Jethro. Just, and if your name is Jethro, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm not dissing you here. But in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29... It says, now Moses said to Hobab, oh, that makes it so much better. Jethro Hobab, the son of Ruel. But Ruel means friend of God. The Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. 
We are setting up for a place in which the Lord said, I will give you, come with us, and we'll treat you well, for the Lord has promised us good things. Moses invites his father-in-law and family to come with him. Now, Dad will say no. But I think it's interesting. So wait a minute, does Moses have to kill his dad? Does Moses have to kill his children, his own? Does Moses have to kill his wife? And why? Up to this point, all we see is that they've been fairly hospitable. Down, I remind you, on the northern edge of Arabia, they've been quite hospitable there. Would you, would you agree? So watch this. Here's, let's say I'll do it this way. Here's Egypt. Here's Saudi Arabia. Here's where Dad and Moses, Moses fled to, and that's his father-in-law. Up here was where Joseph was traded by another group of people. Does that make sense? This was the land of Midian. This was the people or the raiders of Midian up here. You following me so far? Now, Numbers 22. I love that sound, by the way. I'm assuming you're not flipping to the maps or something. You're actually following with me. So Moab said to the elders of Midian. Moab, by the way, is the area of Jordan today. Part of it. Now, this company, that's speaking of the Israelites, will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balach, the son of Zippor, the king of the Moabites at the time. And so they start making a deal. We need to get someone to curse. That's when they get the story of Balachim. You're familiar with him and the donkey. Now, until now, it's like not such a weird thing about a donkey. We expect him to say something like, tomorrow I'm making waffles. But in those days, it was a weird thing. And, and here they start getting into this deal to start trying to take down Israel. And they try to curse them, and they can't curse them. They can't curse them. And ultimately something happens where Israel is taken down in the valley of Peor. And what is it? It was that the women came in of Midian. And they came in and lured the men. And as they lured the men... The men wanted to get close to the women. As the men wanted to get close to the women, the women started drawing them close to their gods. And as they started drawing them close to their gods, and it was simple. What happened is first they invited them in and said, look, it, you don't have to drink. We're just going to go club and you don't have to drink. Just come and hang out with us. Get a Coke. And then you sort of sit there and you look kind of like a dork drinking your Coke while everyone else is having their drinks. And then after a while, what happens is they're like, okay, come on. It's a little bit of dance. You don't have to dance if you don't want to. And it's like, okay. And then they started eating in the place. And then they started bowing down to their gods. And then they started worshiping. You need to know, it wasn't like they hit a switch and went, oh, the worship switch. We're just going to switch to this god now. It was a subtle process. But the way that it worked was through the matter of the heart. And please hear me on this. God knows how effective that is. For all of the arguments we're trying to arm Christians with so we can out-argue atheists on the street, the bottom line is the decisions are not made in the head. The decisions are made in the heart. Now, I'm not telling you don't know your business. What I'm telling you, though, is know the difference. Because brilliant people are going to hell. Because they're starving for evidence, which we and only we can give. And these women take them down. And please hear me. Of every defeat in the history of Israel to this point, none were greater than this one. I mean, we've seen 12,400 people die around the, the golden calf. We've seen 3,000 people die in another battle. This battle, 24,000, guys. 24,000. Do you know what that means? That means if the army that had been sent out to fight the Midianites had gone, everyone would have died. And they could have done the same thing one more time, and everyone would have died from that group too. That's 24,000. Think about it. So putting all of this together, here's what we have. 
we have a group of people who are determined to take them down, and they found a way that works. And the way that works is relationships. Isn't that strange? Any of you have that story yet? Where everything was way cool and you were tight, and then some relationship totally changed everything. Oh, he said he was a Christian. So does Satan. You're like, I know. I think he was Satan. And it was subtly moved you from thing to thing. And the, pur- the purpose was because somewhere down the line, what the enemy did is he just used the mirror. It worked so good. And in that mirror, you're like, you know what? Yeah, what about me? I'm entitled to, all right? Well, I'm lonely. I'm empty. I'm missing. And God's like, I died to be with you. And you're like, but I'll be alone. Could you imagine telling God who died to be with you that statement? But that's what we're doing here. And in the matter of the heart, it is amazing how what that shows us is that the heart is really where the decisions are made. Because the brain and the Holy Spirit both say, stupid, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, no, no, I'm just going to get over here a little bit closer to the fire. I won't get burned, don't worry, because I'm asbestos man. Right? I mean, in mean, the end of it all, you're made of flammable things for a purpose. And beloved, please hear me. Within a series, in one day, 23,000 of them died. In one day, because of a plague. One day, we woke up, and everybody on the tube around us died. It was just like that. And it was because there was a group brought in. And here was the thing. They got so cheeky, the Israelites, that when Moses said, this is done, we need to get rid of this, one guy even took a girl, brought her back into the, into the camp in front of everyone and brought her into his tent and started going for it. Till finally, it was a javelin through both of them. That ended it. And had it not been for that, there would have been more than 24,000 people that would have died. See, we're so proud of our tolerance, but please hear me, beloved. We are supposed to tolerate personality, not sin. Why are we getting that wrong? We could hate each other because we're different personalities, but tolerate sin. And God's like, that's so backwards. So here's the deal. What God is saying is, something has been that effective in taking you down and you need to make sure it never takes you down again because you need to understand and I need to understand that nothing is more important to God than your relationship with him. Everything, every decision he makes is governed by that. Every priority he takes is governed by that. Every plan he has for your life is governed by that. Every yes or no he gives you to your prayers is governed by that. Because what he wants is to be close to you. Jesus died to be with you. That's case in point. He would rather die than live without you. That's what he told us. And in that, there are things that will always be so bad that even a little left in you will win. And that's what he sees. That's what we see here. So listen. The conclusion is simple. There are sedentary pastoral people that live in the south, just north of the, uh, just on the northern, northeastern end of the Saudi Arabia area. They were never going to be challenged because they were not the threat. But the banning raiders up in the front, up in the top where Israel was, they were the ones to be destroyed. Now, how do I know he only went after them? Well, there's two things that are to note. 
One is because Moses only says a thousand from each tribe. If he was going to take on the entire Midianite race of over two million people, would you do it with 12,000 people? You'd say, all right, every boy, let's get together and let's do this. Secondly, the Midianites aren't completely destroyed because by the time we get to Joshua, I'm sorry, to Judges 6, we're going to see that there's there's another group of Midianites that take on, because it's always easy to remember, Gideon fights Midian. Does that make sense? So they're clearly still around. God is not telling you to wipe out everyone who's a Midianite. What God's saying is, I want you to take on those Midianites up here who are vigilantes for your destruction. And he says, there's no space left for this. There's time to get rid of it. Now, I don't know what that is for you. But I can tell you this. If you have a problem with alcohol, don't put it in your house. Does that sound legalistic or does that sound loving? If you have a problem with pornography, don't you have any screen that will allow you to look at it? It's that simple. If you live in a place where every time you go out, you're going to go out and get get a hit off of something, and you know it, you're going to be lighting up or or cranking or whatever it is, then move. Gosh, that sounds so harsh. Does it sound as harsh as taking down the Midianites? Do you think how serious God is about this? See, God doesn't want anything taking you down because he loves you. If I could take on that cancer that took down Priscilla, would I have taken it on? And if she had said, can I have a little, would I be unloving to say no? How much more God who sees the cancers of our soul? And we go, I don't want to do that. Pastor Tony, every time I'm with this guy, we fall into sexual sin. Break up with him, but I love him. Well, then love him enough to leave him. Gosh, that's harsh. Yes, it is, but it doesn't make it wrong. Do you need some help? Well, how do we help you? Do you want me to call? I'll call for you. Don't think I won't. How far will God go to keep you spiritually safe? That's the whole point of this chapter. The whole point is these people were still gathering together and preparing themselves for the next onslaught to see how to take you down. And you're like, oh, we should just be nice and hug them. No, actually, at this point, it's time to take them down. And he says, look, arm some of yourselves for war. We're going to battle. You know what's interesting? Look at it with me now. We'll pick out some points in it and bring this to close. In two, it says, take vengeance on the Midianites. Then you're going to be gathered. God tells Moses, this is it. You're not dying before this happens. He's not going to fight his family. He's not going to take on his dad. They're all down south. He's going to take on the vigilantes, the ones who are there for his destruction. So he tells them, arm some of you, all right, a thousand from each of them, when you all pitching in. Hey, look at if we're going to go to battle here, this is a battle for all talents, for all gifts, not just the teachers, not just the prophets, not just the prayers, but the, not just the givers, but every one of us. Somehow every tribe's going to get in this because I want you free. And you know that horrible condemnation that you feel where inside people are singing about freedom and inside you're like, I don't feel free. I know that when I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to the porn. I know that when I go back to this, I'm probably even going to get drunk tonight. I know that when I go back to this, I'm going to go back to this thing that I know sucks the life out of me. And call for help. Because we do this together. He didn't say, all right, you go fight. Joshua, go fight. We'll follow you and tell us how it works. Look at verse 6 with me. Moses sent them to war. 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. Why is that so important? I'll tell you why that's so important. Because what we're fighting this with, by the way, and it's pretty clear here, is that there's a spiritual battle being fought. Do you see that? 
because if there wasn't a spiritual battle being fought, well, then we wouldn't need to take the priest with us. Well, then why not take Eleazar, the high priest? Why take Phineas? I'll tell you why. Flip back to, to Numbers chapter 25 for a second. Numbers chapter 25, verse 7. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, heard it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into his tent and thrust them both through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so the plague was stopped. Who was the guy who had enough zeal to stop that? And by the way, who was it? It was a Midianite woman, who was, by the way, the daughter of a Midianite leader named Cosby. And I want to remind you, what does Midian mean again? Fighting for the Alpha. That's the problem here. The devil's not in a timeshare. Neither is God. God has a total right to total lordship over us. But he wants it to be by choice. Because he knows the greatest victory in love is one of choice. Who leads us to battle? Who better than the guy who knows what it's like to stand up against Midian? What's the alpha challenge in your life? Is it relationships? Is it still? By the way, do you think that marrying changes that? Why is there so much adultery? Why is there so much divorce? Because they think somehow that a guy who can lust over a thousand women can funnel that into one girl after he gets married? Do you think that's how it works? A gal that has been able to draw from a thousand different sources in regards to emotional fortitude now thinks she's going to draw it all from one man. If she can't draw it from the Lord and he can't actually let the Lord handle this, he's in trouble and so is she. And we watch it time and time again. But the Lord's got a better plan. But for that to happen, the Midianites have to die in our lives. They don't need to be put on holiday. They don't need to move a little bit farther from them or make it inconvenient. It needs to die. Because the bottom line is, if we really love, we'll let die. So hear me. At the golden calf, 3,000 died. That's what it was. And the challenge with Korah, 14,700 died. Again, 24,000 died at this and would have been more had it not been for Phineas. And I want you to know you're not the only one asking. I'm asking myself. I'm asking the Lord, what is the most effective front to my spiritual demise today? What is it? Myself? Insecurity? Relationships? How important is this to God? Well, this is the way Jesus says it in the New Testament. Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We think, well, isn't that beautiful hyperbole? But isn't it sound pretty gross? Doesn't it sound pretty drastic? And listen, why? Because it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. That's how important it is to him. If your right hand causes you to sin, cast it out from you, for it is more profitable for one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into sin. Now listen, just then, 13 chapters later in Matthew 18, he says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses, scandal and tripping you up. But offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom those offenses come. 
If your right hand, or I'm sorry, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter lame, life lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet and cast into everlasting fire. God says, I'd rather have you limping on earth than you running to hell. If your right eye causes you to sin, cast it, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now look, God is not talking here about physical dismembership. Because notice what he says right after that. Take heed that you don't despise the little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And what do you think? That if a man has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, will he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? Please hear me. This is the whole point of it. He goes, look, at, it's about my relationship with you. That's the point. And because my relationship with you is so important, if there's something, but you think, but that thing shows me, and but it's showing you wrong. Or if this thing does it for me, but it does it wrong. Or this thing leads me, but it leads me wrong. Well, then get rid of it. Because it doesn't belong in this relationship. And you know why God does that? Because he loves you. That's the point of it. It's because he loves you. Because if he didn't love you, he wouldn't care. He's like, I don't want it in our relationship. It doesn't belong. All the bitterness, all of your past, all of your anger, all of your pent-up whatever, all of your self-entitlement that you think you have a right to sin or to spitefully use other people, God says, get rid of it. Let's cut it off. Let's cast it out. And let's get back to being intimate where we belong. And in this case, he says, oh, let's do this thing. But the priest is going to lead us. And the priest is going to lead us with the trumpets. Why the trumpets? Because we need to recognize this is a battle. This isn't just something that's going to be a feast. Oh, there's a horn to be blown for the feast. Oh, but not for this. This is the horn of battle. This is the... That should make me want to fight just doing that. How about you? Now, we know when that's blown, that's a different story from the shofar. When that's blown, there's a part of us that already starts to race. Now, maybe today, there's certain songs. England, 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 England. Your heart starts to race when it starts to play. Some songs, people just start doing this while they're singing it. Nothing in their hand. That sound is the sound. You know, it's the sound of a baby crying for a brand new mother. You don't even, it's before you have time to think. Your heart is racing and you're already in fight and flight mode and you have the adrenaline to pick up a Volkswagen and throw it across the street if you need to. And God says, we're saving that sound for that. So when you hear that sound, it's time. It's battle time. So look at, they were the killed all the males. Why the males? Because those were the ones who were going to carry on this tradition from this point on. This you can't have more Midianites without more males. The problem is they even took these kings and they, they took them down to desirous, that's heavy, versicolor, that's reckon, which means the idea of tolerance. Zor is a rock. Hor is a crevice or a prison cell or a hole. And Reva, which means a fourth or a square in the king of Midian. And Belachim, which tells us that that guy that had actually taken him down was there, still there with him. He, was, he had made himself at home with them. Please hear me, beloved. Revelation 2 and 14, it says this. God says, but I have a few things against you because you hold there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. God makes clear, I know what Balaam did. And now he's still there with them. 
giving him counsel, living high on the hog. Now notice it says he killed these kings, and here's another really wealthy, honored guy among that group. Remember, isn't that what he was offered? Just to take down Israel. And there'll be those like that. Has anyone ever come up to you yet and said, my purpose is to make you fall, to make you sin, to make you evil, to give you... I mean, they're like flat out. That's what I've been told by people. It's like, well, thank you for making it so clear. My goal is to get a little bit of evil in you. Well, thank you, Satan. It's the truest you've ever been. But you know the problem was? That though they took all of the strongholds and they burned them, aren't you glad to know that that can happen? That strongholds are burnable? You know what the problem is? That they took the women back with them. Why is that a problem? Because those were the ones who took them down back in 25. And you know the problem is? Please hear me. We're almost done. Please stick with me. We're almost done here. It's quite simple. We leave something and then we forget how nasty it was. Have you ever been with one of those people? The relationship was a horrible relationship. But then they start reminiscing. It's like the, like, you know, reminiscent piano music plays in the background. That's sentimental. And it's like all of a sudden a little bit of a vulvaldy plays or something. They're like, oh, I remember that moment when he brought me flowers. I'm like, yeah, it's because the other girl wasn't home. But I got the flowers. Really? I remember when he laid his hand around me. It was to hit you. Yes, but it was a loving love tap. Funny, you didn't say that at the moment when we jumped in. It's amazing what we can romanticize. And they're like, oh, well, now that we've taken down that part of it. Okay, now that I've gotten a filter on my my desktop. Well, that's okay with my phone. I mean, these days, more people watch things on their phone than they do on their desktop. It all took you down. It all needs to go. And they're like, really? Imagine, you're killing all of these guys, but you're looking for the girl that took you to that temple because you had a romantic relationship with her. Cosby, where are you, Cosby? Thinking, oh, it's all right now. Hey, the moment someone starts telling you, don't worry, there's a party that should, go, should say, why? Oh, don't worry, it's a little cancer. Don't worry, it's just a hint of gangrene. I should be concerned. Tell your doctor that. Don't worry, it's just a little cancerous spot. Don't worry about it, we'll ignore it, it'll go away. Beloved, please hear me. God wants it out. And you know what the problem is? In this room, we can nod and agree and ideologically all say you're right. But it starts with us agreeing that it's evil and it's bad. And not just saying it's a little something, but it's bad. It's cancer. It's gangrene. It's AIDS. We want it gone. It's bad. So that when God says, can I take it now? We can actually say yes. God doesn't want us fighting him in the surgery. Wouldn't that be terrible? So listen. Well, then why keep away, keep the girls alive? I mean, there's some that will say, well, look at the girls who haven't known a man. How do they test that? Oh, see, it's interesting because the Muslim population likes to jump on this part and say, see, look at this. This is marrying like little girls. Because you guys do it. It's okay for us. No, that's not it. You see, what's interesting is in Midianite culture and even to much of the culture today. You could even tell the difference by two things, the clothing they wore and the jewelry they wore. How do you know that? 
You can know that in much of the Middle East, the girls that wear head coverings and those who don't. There's a difference. And in some cultures, even here, you can tell the difference. For some, it's a thing we call a purity ring. But there are certain pieces of jewelry that were given to a girl from the day that she was born. And those pieces remained on her until she was given away. But understand, in that culture, it wasn't like girls went out on a club and started looking for people. They were either married or they weren't. Or they were prostitutes. And you could certainly tell them by their dress. So when God is saying here, by the way, or Moses actually saying, by the way, look at if that girl, you've been with that girl, you shouldn't, don't go back there. Don't go back there. Well, what's the difference on the young ones? Well, the young ones ultimately will be given away to someone else in marriage. But the difference is this, that a girl with somebody that when you adopted in your family was going to become part of someone else's family, they were the only ones that were that way. A married woman still had the responsibility of carrying on the family line of where they came from. If you were a Jones and somebody else married, the first boy was to be named Jones to carry on that lineage. You had a responsibility to that. But you weren't that case. I have two beautiful girls. Most of you are aware of that. And it's fairly likely that both of them will be given away. I pray for their husbands. I think I mean, I, the second one, I'm like, oh, God's praying about that. Like, that guy's going to have to be something else. But I do know this, that in my house, there are three three-stranded cords. And those three three-stranded cords, because I'm responsible to create a level in regards to the spiritual level, the physical level, and the emotional level, my family needs to know. The girls need to know that there's a stability in the house and that that's what I expect with that level. That's the emotional level. Physically, that they know they're never going to starve. And spiritually, that there is a standard of spiritual investment in their lives so that when someone says, who gives the bride away? You've heard that at a wedding. That's what that's supposed to mean, by the way. As the dad stands in an open declaration to everyone else says, I know that this man can carry on the standard to the degree. Now, the good news is that financially should be an easy one. But spiritually, I plan on making it rough enough so that only a real man, a real godly man can take it. And on that day, they get the cord. Two of them, one I get to keep. And that cord gets laid upon his shoulder. Because from that point on, I'm like, she's your problem now. (laughs) Please hear me. It's the same thing God says in Isaiah 9, when it says, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Almighty Father. You know that, Prince of Peace. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the same thing. That's that government. It's a groom's thing, laying it upon him, saying, The bride's yours now. He says, he's coming. He's coming as a child, but he's coming as a groom. So listen, this is how this ends. In the end of it all, let me say this. That there is that to be raised up in propriety under the proper standards of the household, which will ultimately give in proper marriage. And there's the difference. That's why priests here get married in Calvary Chapel. Because it isn't like God says you need to cut off all romantic relationships. But everything perverted and world-centered gets cut. That, actually, interesting enough, the appetite you have has been created by God. But the enemy has been spending all of his time trying to create a new menu. I've heard it said, listen, my wife is actually a very, very good cook. If she ever invites you to dinner, you would be wise to come. If we have a barbecue, you would be wise to come because we have lots of food. I, I don't cook small. And I could always open up the refrigerator and there's something. We've never had a time where the refrigerator's been bare. We've 
Sometimes you've had to get creative. But there's always been something. But the moment you turn on the food channel and some guy with wild hair and a racing outfit on, like he just stepped out of a NASCAR, starts making these things, and they're so fancy, and they're so dolled up, and everything's about presentation. You're never going to eat it. It's on TV. You're never going to eat it. You never see them eat it most of the time either. You see them go, look at how good it is. And they're like, cut, no, throw this thing away. Let's get on the next one. And then you open up your fridge and you're like, man, there's nothing here to eat. And God gives you an appetite. And on that appetite, he's giving you a menu. And that menu is his word. But the world out there is like the food channel. They're like, look at all these fancy things. Oh, yeah, they really have no depth. They really have no real taste, but they're really great in presentation. And you can go back to that relationship God had intended and be like, there's nothing here to eat. Do you see how that works? It's brilliant and evil at the same time and horrible. So listen, there is a relationship God has intended, but the first is his. Without that, no other relationship is going to be meaningful the way it's supposed to be. And then after that, he says, listen, when we're done with this, these guys come back. Of the 12,000 who went to war, how many came back? should be simple. Of the 12,000 men who went to war, how many came back? All of them. So how many? Give me a number. That was pretty simple. Of the 12,000 men who went to war, how many came back? Because in this spiritual battle, when God leads us in, we all come out of this thing alive. And he says, when that's done, this is the deal. We're going to split it in half. Even those who don't go to the war still get the blessing of it. The whole congregation gets blessed for this. And I want to warn you, you never sin in a bubble. You never sin in a vacuum. The bottom line is you walk with Christ and everybody's going to benefit from it. Everybody. Your family first. Those closest to you next. But the whole church blesses. So please, walk with Christ. I want to get the benefit from it. Please hear me. And then God says, well, then let's make sure we give some back to him. Of the spoil that was taken, every piece of jewelry went back to him. Did you notice that? And those were the things, every piece of jewelry was usually dedicated to a God. All of that was laid at the feet of God and said, you know what? We don't want this stuff. Remember what happened the last time? We're not going to do this anymore. It's your gold now, God. He says, I want you clean. Look at when this battle happens, go to the living water of God's word. Go to the living water of his Holy Spirit. And let God as an all-consuming fire sweep right through you. Now, that may be a fiery trial, like James tells us, or it may just be that God, through his infinite love, will burn through you. But we want to come back into this thing with a pure heart. And then when we're done with that, let's come back together. And the guys were like, you know what, God, you've brought us such a victory. We don't want to even take what we have here. We want to give you that too. God, I just want to give that to you and tell you thank you. Because in the end of it, there's such a victory. See, here's the thing. When victory happens, praise is the result. Worship happens from victory. The problem is victory happens with surrender. Ironic, isn't it? We just surrender to our leader. And when we surrender to our leader, he leads us in the battle. The horn gets blown and we all come out of this thing alive and blessed. And that's how this ends. So listen, in all of this, God wants to take every one of you and show you the battle. And it starts with this. No greater battle can happen on earth than that of death. My 
God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all of our sins could be paid for, all of the, the, the guilt could be vanquished, and in doing so, he rose from the dead to show us that there's a brand new life now, a life where even death itself has no victory over him. And he says, would you like it? But because he's a gentleman, and I told you, the greatest victory is in choice. He lays that choice before you and says, will you choose yes? If you're a Christian, you've already made that choice, right? But if you've made that choice, then follow me as we say, God, you have permission to eradicate from me even that which I would hold on to if it's a Midianite, kill it. Does that sound scary? It should. Because I know he'll take you seriously. But you know what? Blessed are the surgeries God performs. Because they're never unnecessary and they're always perfect. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the choice is yours now. Dying on the cross, raising from the dead, and now he says, will you let me be the Lord and Savior of your life? Do you give me permission to reinvent you? You can't tell God, God, this lifestyle, this thing's untouchable, this addiction, this love, this relationship, they're untouchable. Look at it. And maybe that what God will do is just reframe the way you look at something or reprioritize something. But it will be this, that if it's an offense to him, then God's going to take it down. He's going to win. He doesn't lose. You might as well side with him. Then you won't lose either. Except what you shouldn't have anyways. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this text. No doubt, Lord, there are all kinds of things in this, Lord, that are rough. But, Lord, it's rough because relationships are rough, Lord, when we come into this thing with the baggage that fights you, when what you really want is total surrender. And can I just say you deserve it? You totally deserve absolute surrender. That's the point here. And as we come to you, Lord, we just want to ask you to forgive us for why we've clung to that which hurts your heart, which kills us. And the only reason it hurts you is because it kills us. And so, Lord, whatever the Midianites are in our life, those things that fight for Alpha, our past, our grievances, our bitternesses, which you tell us we have no right to hold on to, right now, Start, Holy Spirit, by speaking to every believer in here and telling us right now, God, tell us right now those things that we can openly say, you're right, God, that's wrong. Because we know that's how this starts, is to openly confess, agree with you, that what is bad is bad. And as you speak to our hearts right now, may we agree with you, God, that's bad. God, that's bad. You're right, God, that's bad. And if it's bad, then you have the right to exhume and eradicate from us, to cut, to dig, and to remove from us as necessary. So, Lord, please do that in our lives right now. And, Lord, we know that that may mean you may sever a relationship or many, a position or a place or a thing or a case that we think we can hold against someone else. Or something from the past, we keep, continue to embrace. That arm should be wrapped around you instead. We give you right to remove it completely. That we would leave the traps 
the handcuffs of these places and walk out like we should out of the cells you've, that you've never intended for us to live in. And while you're dealing with the heart of every Christian here, mine too, the shout out is for anyone here who isn't sure if they've ever accepted Jesus. If you're sure you haven't, or if you're not sure you have, you can walk out of here sure that you have by accepting the gift of Jesus right now. But that's your choice. We're told that if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. You tell us that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So as I pray this prayer right now, I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let it so be so in my life. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. Jesus, I come to you calling on your name to save me. I'm guilty in my sins but you paid for them on the cross. And just like Scripture promised, you died on the cross so that all of my sin could be paid for. All of the guilt and the crimes of my heart fully punished upon you. You were buried as you died. And three days later, just as Scripture promised, you rose again, dying on the cross, buried in the tomb, Raised again. And you promised me new life. A life no longer under the dominion and power of these things that have enslaved me. No longer under the tyranny of death and sin. But free. Free indeed in you. But for that to happen, I must needs declare you as my Savior and Lord. And I do so. I willingly accept your payment on the cross on my behalf and declare you the Lord of my life. And I recognize to do that, you will now be removing the Midianites from my life too. But Lord, I give you Alpha and Omega. You are both. I give you the beginning and the end of my life. Have preeminence over all of it, I pray. And reinvent me to that which is greatest and you know best. So I'm yours now. I surrender to you, calling on your name. Jesus, I'm yours. And if you agree with that, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen.